Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. It's time to reimagine therapy and what it means to be a therapist. We are human beings who can now present ourselves as whole people with authenticity, purpose, and connection, especially now when therapists must develop a personal brand to market their practices. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where we talk about how therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. I'm Katie Vernoy, a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I'm Kurt Whithelm, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. And today we're talking about the framework of being a whole person therapist. We're, we're answering the question, what is a modern therapist and what challenges do we face being therapists in the modern age? So a big part of this probably starts in the very beginning, which if we go to Julie Andrews, it's a very good place to start. <laughs> Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. So what is the beginning? The beginning probably starts with psychoanalysis and the idea of the blank slate therapist. Yes, the, the, the therapist that is this old guy smoking a pipe, sitting behind the couch, barely saying a word, and you have no idea what he thinks. And really... I don't see that working in a lot of today's world. I think that if we move to that blank slate idea, we would all have our our little prefab therapist office that are painted gray with gray carpets, and we would all be encouraged to wear gray and just to blend into the background and let people come in and talk with us. And I don't know how many people really want that anymore. I think that most of modern consumers, modern clients, aren't looking for someone to, certainly not looking to pay someone a bazillion dollars to just sit and listen to them. They actually want to sort through things and uncover what's getting in their way, potentially some practical solutions, some specific strategies. And so this idea of a blank slate and this therapist fading into the background is just not relevant anymore. And I can honestly say that I am not trained in psychoanalysis, that because of this blank slate idea, I did choose a much different direction with the way that I practice. And the more and more involved in working from a humanistic or person-centered idea to really foster a real relationship, to make that real relationship an intervention in and of itself has made me shy even more and more away from this idea of a blank slate. For sure, for sure. I think for me, I I say that I grew up psychodynamic and then became more behavioral or cognitive behavioral and really became existential and humanistic. 
the big piece for me was as I moved into community mental health, I was working in South Los Angeles. I learned that that wasn't going to fly. People did not want me to say, well, that's a very interesting question. Why are you asking me a personal question? Why would that be possible? Why, you know, the pulling away, deflecting just didn't fly. Nobody wanted to, to hear that anymore. And so to me, I think it's so important to be able to talk through what a real therapist, a whole person therapist is. And so a lot more of that seemingly is working out of the here and now, at least from our perspective. And with that comes really dealing with a lot of the stuff that's going on in the room, going on in our lives and the way that that's shaping what we're looking at right now. For instance, I remember in my early training during grad school, one of my professors talking about the idea that the therapist has a professional life and they have a private life and that never the two shall meet. And so what this left uh, her life with, her practice with, was being in a situation where she was avoiding dual relationships at all costs, even going so far as to cancel a vacation because there was going to be a client on one of the flights that she was on. And I'm subscribing more and more to the idea that between the professional life and the private life is actually a personal life that can help not only inform self-disclosure, but is really something that we can't avoid in the 21st century with things like social media exist? For sure. I think if we really are participating in society, we are a, our work is more informed. We're able to bring knowledge, experience, wisdom into the room. And if we're constantly avoiding dual relationships, we're not engaging in the world. And with social media, with being present and living as a brand in order to market our practice, we're finding more and more therapists who are bringing personal aspects of their lives in to inform their psychotherapy practice. So I think that therapists who are living as a brand are using personal aspects of their life to inform and advertise and market to clients of what their expertise might be. And so it does bring out a lot of aspects of their personal life that you can't help but avoid if you're choosing to market your practice in this way. For instance, somebody who might be wanting to work on achievement with athletes is going to bring out and highlight aspects of their own athletic background in order to give themselves a credibility, but also to connect with clients as far as showing that they understand the same struggles that go with that. I think that's so important because I think oftentimes what happens is if you've not had an experience or you don't understand what they're talking about, the work isn't as solid. I think in eating disorders, DV, substance abuse treatment, they've known this for a long time. When someone has been there and can tell someone else how they navigated through, someone who has really explored the depth of what they're experiencing and has had positive recovery, they can bring something different to the work than just someone who is heartfelt and well-trained. And so in order to be able to, to claim that experience, to say, hey, I know who you are, I know what you're experiencing, I'm not going to bring my whole experience to you, but I, I do understand what's going on. We have to disclose that. We have to say, hey, this is this is what I bring to the table. And that's not a blank slate for sure. So how do we really take the ownership of who we are to inform our practice, to inform how we live in the world and really make this the best benefit, not only for us as therapists and our 
our own happiness and self-care, but also in really being able to take this to clients. I think we need to be doing our own work. So we make sure that we're not bringing it to our clients in order to do our work with our clients. I think that's why I'm in therapy. That's why I have a business coach that I'm working on these things outside of the room. I think another piece is really being clear on why we're doing what we're doing. And this also kind of flies in the face of a lot of the modern therapy movement that really is based in manualizing protocols and making a lot of therapists interchangeable. It's a focus on symptom reduction rather than really embracing the ideas of what it means to be working with a a specialized population or being sensitive to cultural diversity. Absolutely. I think that as therapists, we're different people in who is, I mean, we've actually had a shift where therapists have become more culturally diverse. There's a lot more women therapists than men. And so these, these old models, these blank slate models aren't relevant and they can't necessarily hold who we are now. There's this different piece that we all bring. And with these manualized treatments, with managed care, with therapists as cogs in a machine, I think you've described it as, it's something that doesn't take into account what many studies, I think, you know, and, and maybe there's newer studies that'll, that'll go against us, but many studies have said the most important thing in success and treatment is the therapeutic relationship. Thinking of how the, the adage in, in therapy, we, we've kind of colloquially known this for years as you end up with a type of therapy practice that makes you deal with your own issues. And that that work on yourself is definitely taking ownership of what your struggles have been and really being able to empathize with uh, the, the clients who are in the room. But if working through those kind of issues yourself is so paramount to helping clients, this is how we've really arrived at that idea of you can't take clients further than you've taken yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely, I have different thoughts about that. I think that there are things that we can help people with where we can see where we need to go, but we still are our works in progress. So I don't know if I completely agree with that, but I do believe that there is a truth in that, that until we're self-aware and understand where it is we're going to go, we can't lead clients there. It's the blind leading the blind. And when we take ourselves out of the picture as a, as a human being in the room, I think there is a, an ability to lose track or maybe a, a problem where we're going to lose track of what we bring to the table, how our personal, professional, private pieces all come together into the room and how we navigate through bringing the best version of ourselves as a therapist in the relationship. Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists 
to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. So moving from the theoretical down into the more practical aspects of this, how does this play out in your day-to-day life and your day-to-day practice? I think for me, I find that in being a a whole person and understanding who I am, understanding what I'm still working on, I'm able to be present with my clients in a way I think other therapists may not be. I think there's certainly a lot of really excellent therapists that have this self-awareness. I'm not speaking out on anything in particular, but I think for me, it's something where I've had therapists refer to me because they felt like I was a real person, that they thought that, that working with me was a partnership, a collaboration, and that that's what they needed. And that's certainly not a blank slate therapist, right? Absolutely. I think early on in my development as a therapist, there's a trap of thinking that you know yourself. And... Maybe it's just me, but I, I, in my experience of, of working with a lot of the pre-licensed community as well, is that the people who are working on themselves tend to have a better idea of owning where their limitations are and not seeing it as a hindrance, but more as a growth opportunity. And depending on the deafness of what you can handle in the room with a client, of being open about the struggles that you're facing at the time in order to further the relationship with the client and to show them that it's okay to not have answers, that it's a humanizing experience to be struggling and that we as therapists don't have everything figured out and that we're just kind of shepherds along the way. I agree. I think there's another piece to that. And you kind of said it, this humanizing piece, but when someone comes as solely the professional with no flaws or foibles into the room, it creates an unrealistic expectation in the client that they have to be perfect, that they have to live up to this standard in order to be well, to be healed, whatever their phrase, you know, however they phrase it. And so I see that and it's such a huge risk now because you look at Facebook and Facebook is this place where we all go and look at other people's perfect lives and it causes so much depression and self-doubt because we're only seeing these very polished versions of people. And so if therapists are not real either, where are we finding the example of how to live a fully embodied, authentic life, recognizing Recognizing that nobody's perfectly blissful and peaceful all the time, that there's struggles, there's uncertainties, there's unknowns. And so when I've been in session with clients and I've allowed part of my humanness to come forward, it's not always worked out, but oftentimes the client feels so relieved that they're not the only one. So this kind of brings up a challenge for the therapist of really having their own self-awareness and Mm -hmm being able to assess where they're really at. You know, Scott Miller, one of the researchers on the effectiveness of psychotherapy, he cites that the average therapist ranks themselves as being an 8 out of 10 in effectiveness. Well, that's kind of contradictory in and of itself, because if the average therapist is at an 8, what are the bad therapists at? And what are they missing out on as far as being this whole person? Well, and I was just thinking if the average therapist thinks there's an 8 out of a 10, you probably think you're a 10 out of a 10, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm humble enough to recognize that on any given day, I am somewhere between a five and a 10. But I don't know how many, depends on the day, depends on what's going on. But, um, but I don't know how many therapists are like, yep, I'm a one. 
I, I'm definitely not a good therapist. I should keep practicing, but I'm at a one. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I see a lot of therapists as pretty. There's some that I think are definitely like I'm. I'm awesome. This is this is what I bring. And then I think there's some that are definitely very negative towards themselves. But maybe that's more about the business aspects rather than the clinical aspects. Maybe it's I'm I'm great clinically. I'm an eight out of ten. Not not a hundred percent, but still really good, but then they have these other self-doubts related to building a practice or having a career. So I don't know, but it's interesting because I I do believe that there's more of a narcissistic piece to that, which is I'm going to say that I'm confident, but I actually feel like, you know, if people really saw me, they wouldn't think that I was so great. Or in supervising, I've come across supervisees who justify, well, my clients love me as being evidence of them being an effective therapist. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that can be very, very seductive. And so it really does mean that self-awareness, self-assessment is a huge piece in understanding where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think there's another piece to the self-awareness that a lot of therapists miss, and that's in seeing themselves as a business owner, seeing themselves as an individual, a human being that has other needs besides helping other people. So often I see people work themselves to the bone, partly because there's, you know, the pay is not great for a lot of folks. And then also because they want to help people. And so they, you know, sacrifice their time, their schedule, whatever, in order to do it. And so, they end up burning themselves out and really aren't practicing ethically because they're so exhausted and and filters go away, boundaries go away, and they become less effective. And so I think part of being a modern therapist is recognizing also your need to take breaks and say no and ask for a fee or a salary that will help you to sustain a career financially. And that was a huge part of developing my practice and my business was not trying to appeal to every single client, not trying to bend over backwards to make scheduling work for every single client. So being able to set some pretty healthy boundaries. Um, When I was first establishing my office within a suite with some other therapists, I took the interior office with no windows because it was cheaper. And where I was at in my business at the time was that extra $50, $70, $100 a month whatever the price difference was to have the interior office was pretty substantial for me. Now that I'm six years later and in the exact same office, I'm finding it more and more necessary for my even 10 minute breaks in between clients every couple of hours to get outside, get some natural light and to see that the passing of the day is existing and not just walking out at the end of the day and being like, oh, it's dark outside. I hope I remember (laughs) where I parked my car. Yeah. I think uh, for me, it's been about making sure that I raise my fees appropriately and that I don't work a million hours. I think coming from community mental health and going into being my own boss and and having a a business, I think when I started doing work, I would spend 15 hours a day working because networking is work. And so I didn't realize, I was like, oh, well, I was out at coffee all day. I was interacting with people. And now I have to sit down in the office and do a ton of work. And what happened was I was burning out because I was doing, I was working way too many hours without recognizing that what I was doing was work. And so I think it's, it's recognizing even if it's fun work, I still need breaks and downtime. When you are feeling burnt out like that, 
How does it come across in your sessions? I try to manage it. I think that you can't do it 100%. But I think when I've had that happen, there's been times when I went long on sessions and the, the conversations devolved. I think there's times when I've been less filtered and said, you know, and did interventions that sometimes they worked out, sometimes they didn't, but that were ones that weren't as, as thoughtful. I think in the supervisees and other people I've seen, I've definitely seen people who were burnt out, whether it's kind of the potentially toxic environment in community mental health or private practice, they get focused on the survival needs, whether it's I need to meet productivity, so I'm going to meet with clients even if they don't need it, I'm going to rush around, I'm going to do all these things, or in private practice, I'm going to take clients because I need the money and it doesn't matter that they're not in my my wheelhouse. I'm going to really treat clients who I are charging more. I'm charging more. I'm going to treat them better than the clients that I'm charging less. Like It just it becomes this fear and this constant thing where the focus is isn't on the relationship in the room, but on the survival needs of, of the clinician. What what have you seen? I'm drawn to a couple of, of different thoughts here. One is I uh, was working with a musician uh, a couple of years ago, and he spoke about you know, being at the top of his game required him to practice day in and day out, and that he noticed a pretty detrimental uh, change if he missed a day of practice, and that his bandmates would notice a difference if he took a weekend off and at his level of performing that the audience started to notice if he was missing three or four days in a row. So there was definitely a, an idea of continuing to assess where he was at and, and the work that he needed to put in to uh, continue to excel at his craft. Now where our craft as therapists is us and what we bring into the room. I'm reminded of a client that uh, you know the social pleasantries that happen every day when she comes in for her session. You know, Hi, how are you? And it was probably about a month into our practice, she pointed out to me that I always paused and actually evaluated where I was at in that specific moment before I answered her. So it was never just kind of this, oh, hi, how are you? I'm fine. It was more of like, hi, how are you? I think I'm doing pretty well today. I'm, I'm in a good place today. That she really took as um, a, a very positive, healthy sign for me. But I know that when I'm reaching that burnout point that I my clients are picking up from me that I'm not quite as energized in the room, quite as engaged, that I'm tired and that they're not getting as much out of therapy. And you know, from a clinical aspect, they're not getting what they need from me out of our relationship. From a business standpoint, those kind of clients are the ones who who tend to not come back. And so I'm looking to replace them in my schedule and uh, trying to rework through those relationships. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. Yeah, I think people don't recognize that if they're working from a burned out place or they're working from a less than tip top place, that what happens is it not only is not good clinical practice, but it does the business actually suffers too. Like when clients don't engage with you, when you haven't developed the relationship, when you're not fully present, they feel it. And unless the relationship's already very well established, they don't come back. They don't want to continue to engage. And that's a, there's a financial hit there. And so as we, we look at this from the, the framework of being 
whole person. I think we've identified a number of things to manage or to really look out for and to avoid. What are some of the positive things that we can do? I think one of the positive things that I like is being able to be an activist and stand up in my community for the things that I believe in. And for me, that's participating in advocacy for MFTs. It's also advocacy for survivors of sexual trauma. Those are the things that I am passionate about and supporting women. And so being able to stand up and make a statement to be a full person in a professional space, as well as bringing some personal beliefs into it, it shows it shows my clients that there's more than just this blank slate, but it also provides me with the meaningfulness of having a full life. How about you? This might be informed a lot more by working with teenagers who might be looking for a more concrete answer just through their development and through some of the questions that they bring into practice. But I find that a lot of times having something else going on in my life outside of being just immensely involved in the profession or going through trainings or even just seeing clients, but having something else that connects me with them on a on a more real level of might be watching the same Netflix show or it might be uh, engaging in something that just makes the idea of who I am as somebody who does exist outside of my office and using that as a model for clients to not necessarily sweat the small stuff that's going on in their lives, but to have permission to really enjoy and inform the decisions that they make in their day-to-day life. I certainly have had that experience where I can have real conversations with my clients about real issues. And I try not to make it overpoweringly about my, my personal views, but I certainly am more informed. I'm more engaged. I'm a person of the world versus someone that's just trying to get from them what they think. And so it's it's more of a discourse. It feels more like a real conversation. And I think that's more enjoyable for me, but I also think it's more helpful for them. So I'm teaching a practicum class uh, for the first time ever. Uh, started about a month ago. And one of the texts that I'm having my class read is Yellum's Gift of Therapy. And it's been a really interesting read in working with second year grad students because some of them are working in these community mental health type agencies. And to really challenge them to work more in the here and now is a challenge that they aren't facing when it comes to um, trying to meet productivity and working from a symptom reduction model or a manualized protocol model. But what's been pretty fantastic, even in the short time that we've been looking at this, is the calmness that they're able to now describe in being able to work with their clients of just using it as something that sells what the interventions are that exist within the treatment plan that actually existed before I came into teaching their class. But to really bring that aspect of I'm a human and I can bring this in and I can soften what we're doing and still be able to achieve the same things that we set out to work upon. I think that's so important because I know when I first started practicing, I would kind of, I think, hold a lot of my own stuff inside for most of the time that I I was working and I would come home and I'd be kind of a mess. I had to kind of process all of these emotions, all of the things that had gone throughout the day. And certainly I had supervisors and colleagues and all of that and I had consulted, but there was this piece of having something happen to me versus actively participating as as a, a fellow traveler, so to speak, to use kind of a cliche. And one of the things that I, I really like bringing up in 
whether it's teaching or supervising or any of the continuing education workshops that I provide is asking people in attendance about what their worst session has been. And this has really uh, opened up a lot of discussions about we don't all have everything figured out all the time. And so I like to talk about a couple that I worked with several years ago that uh, called me up. They wanted a session that night. I happened to have an opening that night, but we were about four sessions into our relationship. And they came into the session continuing whatever argument had started beforehand. And when they got to the couch, they both just kind of turned to me and looked at me. And so I turned to the wife and said, well, it sounds like what you're talking about is this. And she looked at me and just kind of shook her head and said, no. So I turned to the <laughs> husband and said, well, okay, it, it sounds like what you're trying to ask for is this. And he looked at me and he goes, no. <laughs> and then they just made eye contact. And without saying a word, they both got up and they left my office and I never saw them again. That is hilarious. That reminds me of, I think, one of my bad sessions, uh, which had that similar like disconnect between myself and the client. And it was also about this trying to be the therapist that I wasn't. I had a client who it was really hard for her to generate, to kind of initiate conversation. It was one of my first clients. And for a long time, I was really pulling the conversation along really structuring the session. And my supervisor told me I needed to utilize silence. This was the big silence. So I was transparent about the silence and, and allowing her to kind of chime in when she had something to say. But it was a torturous session of me kind of asking a couple of questions. She would speak a little bit and then we would sit in silence for minutes at a time. It was awful. And I made a comment at the end of the session kind of summarizing how torturous it was and that this is what therapy was going to be like from here on out because this is what the supervisor had said I should do. And oh my gosh, it was so bad. It was, it, I felt awful. Awful. She felt awful and she never came back. And this was a client I had seen for over a year. And it was like, I was trying to do this thing of be, sitting in silence and not carrying the session for her because I was working harder than the client, quote unquote. And she had made good progress, but she still wasn't able to initiate the conversation. And the poor thing just was like, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> and I think that it's important to evaluate and learn from those experiences to recognize what our role is in it, that, you know, there's always something that we can look at in ourselves that might improve those situations. And with my couple, you know, really what I learned is that I was really caught up in the moment of, of their argument and trying to make something happen that validated that I had something to offer them. And I think that in looking back at it, what probably would have help them the best is just to admit how overwhelming it was to enter into a session that way and to give more of the permission of where we were all at and just trying to scramble for anything rather than pretending that there really was a direction that needed to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think with being, you know, circling back to being a modern therapist, I think some of it is these are developmental things that we've learned, but I think it's also being able to do real work to avoid some of these types of things, which is teaching and learning from an early stage of our careers, how to be whole person therapist. Because I think when you try to stick to the blank slate model or the no disclosure model, it, it does help develop boundaries, but I think it can really harm clients when you don't bring yourself as a whole person into the room. And so as we move forward and as we continue to deepen our conversations going forward, I think that a lot of the different 
things that we brought up today of working in different environments that might force us to practice from a certain theory or certain model to a completely unstructured uh, private practice where you're the boss, um, of really being able to understand the impact of what you're bringing in, the energy that you bring in, how well you take care of yourself really does interplay with the clients and to be open to the idea that you are a flawed person, that that is something that the better that you take the ownership of it, the more permissions that that gives the client and the better that that allows the client to move forward. And I think just taking that further and kind of talking a little bit about how we'll continue these conversations later, I think when you know who you are, you know what you bring to the table, you understand your flaws, you're able to serve your clients better, you're able to create a stronger personal brand that resonates with your ideal target market. You bring in those clients, you work well with those clients, and you're in, especially if you're able to, to couple that with taking care of yourself as the human being, you can have a career that that is more effective and more sustainable. And so to me, I think, you know, kind of just summarizing, we've got a lot of different things we want to talk about as we move forward with this podcast. Some of them are, are about how to be a real person and do that in an illegal and ethical way, what it means to be a whole person therapist in different arrangements. I, I've, you know, I think about a lot of the different therapists that I know who are bringing themselves into the room and bringing themselves into the world and have done it in a lovely way. And I want to talk with them about how that goes. And then I think also looking at how can you, the survival guide part, how can you create this career, whether it's talking about how do you create a positive social media experience or how do you market, how do you navigate through the business aspects? We, we're really going to dig deeper into this, but we wanted to just touch briefly on what it is to be a modern therapist and how we how we view that and and how we want to help shift how we're, we're taught and how we're generally talking about these topics. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.